Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Folks, we're, we're we're live. We have Matthew Eric with us, the great game. But you know, tonight we're today we're going to do something a little different. You know, CG and I are going to come out because we're living in Joe's America, and in Joe's America, and as the Western world spinning out of control and falling to pieces, we have to get creative. So, starting next week, CJ and I are going to be doing uh, clothing try-ons and and, and 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 swimsuit ideas, but we're going to go to like the Goodwill and the Salvation Army and get clothing from there. Walmart and uh, Target and all that will be considered more high end. And then we're going to put on tutorials on how to do proper dumpster diving, like this gentleman's doing right here. See, all this food that's wasted. We need to stop wasting food. Do you know what the price of hyperinflated broccoli is? I mean, it's terrible. It's you know. So we're going to get into all of that. Uh, but before we get into all that, we, we want to introduce our guest. It's Matthew Arrett. He needs no introduction at this point. You can find him over at thecanadianpatriot.org as well as risingtidefoundation.net and make sure that you get his books. Why is it important? Understanding what Matthew wrote and what he's written about in his books is so vital, so key. The Unfinished Symphony is an amazing book in a, in a, in a series of two. And once you, uh, once you get the framework of what's happening in the world, you'll be better positioned so you don't have to do this. This right here, this dumpster diving. That's we definitely... want to stop you from dumpster diving and, and, and stop you from trying on used bikinis over at the Salvation Army and the Goodwill. We want to stop that from happening. So without further ado, Matthew Errett, what's up, buddy? How are you? Well, that's the uh, 21st century dystopic uh, unipolar economic order <laughs> yeah. how-to yeah. list right there. No, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, one thing as well, you guys are just are we're we're. I think uh, Rogue News is going to be back on YouTube as well in a few days. So I think part of this is is also need an obligation to spread your talent out to do things that will not get you censored. Since increasingly that spectrum of what you can say and not say that'll uh, cause you to be canceled is widening and widening. So so far, trying on bikinis, dumpster diving might be the only thing that you're allowed to say publicly. Uh, <laughs> that yes. doesn't get you canceled. Yes, exactly. And then, uh, you know, and once you're done with the dumpster diving and uh, the buying secondhand bikinis that are used, you too can jump on the metaverse and live your best life now. Who needs reality? I was kind of impressed, though, from that one video. That, it, that is shocking. That, that, that is a lot of quality. Appearingly, I mean, that's quality food getting thrown out. That, that's, that's surprising. Um, oh, yeah. but, but, I mean, part of this, too, is like, this is a reflection of the the age of controlled obsolescence, right? The, the idea that we acquiesce to live in an age that would involve um, consuming and like the idea that we don't have to produce anymore. That was what was told to these baby boomers, you know, coming of age in the early 70s, that the new order is going to be premised on you being a good citizen and just, you know, looking out for number one keeping the engines of the economy going by by buying things in your malls and, and just don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the fact that you don't have factories anymore and you can't like produce anything for yourself anymore. That's okay. That's why we have dark skinned people who are going to be poor 
doing that dirty work that we don't have to look at or do ourselves. And, uh, and that'll just be the forever order. That was insane. And, uh, and coming out of it, you know, like people used to get their shoes repaired at shoe stores. They would, they would like, like know how to sew. And when you bought a piece of clothing, the idea wasn't that you would have to replace any single item in a, in a few months, you know, or, sure. or throw your shoes away after they, they, the soles wear out a little bit. The idea was things were built to last. Yeah. And that's why you still have cars in Cuba, right? From the 1950s. Yep. I mean, they're, they're driving around. They obviously they got to be tuned up and a lot of people are mechanics there. But the fact is these cars, you try to imagine in 50 years, my yeah. Nissan Sentra is not going to be driving around any road in the world. You know, like that thing right. is designed to kaput in a, <laughs> in five, five, six years, I'm going to have to already start having this thing tuned up. So um, I mean, you, you made a point, man, uh, and, and it goes to show, especially now with inflation running rampant, I think people need to get conscientious on what they buy. Um, you know, in terms of quality shoes, I always tell people, like, get, like, boots and shoes that you could always resole. I uh, Only boots I wear are resolable boots because I don't want to be buying boots every single year. You know, it's stupid. It's a waste of money. Clothing-wise, spend a little bit more. You know, you, yeah, you can go and get yourself a uh, whatever from Target or Walmart. Save a little more. Get yourself a Brooks Brothers polo shirt or something like something that'll last you. You know? Yeah, yeah. That, that's like a. It's a. It's really a, a lost uh, way of thinking. Very few yep. people do that. There's still a couple of holdouts now and again, but but by and large, that's really. I, I don't see any millennial thinking in those terms these days. No. Uh, but that's also part of it, right? Like, so people are wondering, well, why why are we going through this crisis now? Is it because Russia is somehow you know like intervening on Ukraine? Is is it because you know, they're, they're withholding their, their raw materials and their, their natural gas. Like I'm being told by the media that is that what's at fault? Is it, is it China that just decided to spring an operation out of the West to undermine the Western order in order to create their, you know, communistic model of world government and uh, destroy capitalism in the, in so doing, I mean, there's so much, there's so many explanations for why our world is going into a crisis mode that have no bearing on reality. But a lot of people who just don't know how to think a little bit about the decisions that were made are buying into this stuff and they just can't see. No, it's the fact that we allowed for 50, 60 years of living in a decadent society with no consideration for what are you doing for the future? We permitted the, the idea of controlled obsolescence of computers and everything mechanical is supposed to it's designed to crap out on you. Um, that's and just wasting product, right? Like, I mean, the, the fact yeah. that. The things like that, that thousands of people can actually live relatively uh, can eat well with just by like mapping out where the dumpsters are behind grocery stores all over North America. And there's like this yep. giant community. I mean, good on them, you know, make, you know get, getting getting by the system or getting getting around the system. But at the same time, what the hell? That, that should never happen. And the amount of product like even now farmers, I was just seeing a montage video of farmers in Canada and the United States all saying, look, I'm getting these these documents from the Biden administration telling me that I am obliged to destroy my crops. And you, you have hundreds of farmers all saying like, if we don't do this, we're not going to get loans next year to plant our seed or anything else. Um, they're willing to pay 1.5 times market market price for our, our corn, our wheat, our everything, our soy, but not to use it to just destroy it, to go in with like steamrollers, uh, and these big machines that only exist to destroy crops that have been created. Like what kind of thing is that to create in your society, right? Machines that exist to destroy crops that shouldn't even exist, but these are being rolled out across farms all over North America. I'm, I'm imagining that this is also happening in Europe. Why to create scarcity. Yeah. 
I mean, and, and they were accustomed to doing that before the intention to actually create scarcity was fully being brought online as it is today under the this whole great reset thingamajig. Um, before that, we had already accommodated or our our um, our farmers into expecting this sort of behavior for other reasons. Like, you know, I got cases that I've written down where uh, Niagara farmers in Ontario were paid tons of money by the Canadian government to just destroy all of their peach trees, grapes, everything else, because there was a glut on the market and they needed to uh, create a bit more scarcity in order to modify the prices. Um, this has been going on with, with uh, farms, pig farms in Alberta, BC, and the US, where farmers were paid to kill their kill their sow and just bury the dead bodies, let them rot. Don't don't make bacon out of that stuff. But and why? Because the pork meat, you know, on the markets was just simply too low. They wanted to increase the price. So there are all of these. I think this is where we start getting at the the false dichotomy between the the neoliberal sort of absolute religious free market worship of money idea that came in in the 70s as the new paradigm mm. with its opposing counter gang operation of conservationism you know all consumerism is bad we have to protect nature from humankind and both of these false paradigms were put in um as false opposites to get people to think they have to pick one or the other you know and today we see how both of them are actually have been pushing us in the same direction as cattle into a slaughterhouse which the ultimate desire has been, on the one hand, to have an economic system based only around self-multiplication of money without creating anything measurable of value in the world. That idea resulted in turning our economy, which was formerly a productive industrial economy before the 70s, into right. this time bomb of speculative fakery that's designed to blow. That's, that's, that's what it is designed to do. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got people who were repulsed by the piggish behavior of idiot consumerists who can't think with a bit of morality, right, who are then obviously so repulsed that they're inclined to jump into the other net, thinking that now that they're critical thinkers, because they can, you know, they, they can read Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn and criticize the big bad evils of capitalism. Now they think that because they've gone to the other extreme, now they're awakened and enlightened. And it's like, no, you're still promoting green new deals. You're still promoting the the controlled destruction of energy sources and you know any any type of viable production of food needed to keep people alive now you're promoting that which is seems like the people who control both paradigms are happy with how you're uh, thinking of yourself as a revolutionary bernie sanders or whoever you know so it's it's a fake operation and that's why i really like the um this little remark here by lavrov um i just gotta pull it up but i thought this little 30 second clip from the man yeah. It was a really nice way of demonstrating how to break out of these false paradigms. This is like last week. It's like wow. 40 seconds. For people listening on their, uh, you know, on their headset or something, he's basically saying a new reality is taking shape. The unipolar world is irretrievably receding into the past and a multipolar mm. world is being born. Amen. This is an objective process that cannot be stopped. There won't be one single single ruler in this new reality. All key states with a decisive influence on the world economy and politics will have to come to terms. Mm -hmm. 
Being aware of their special status, they will ensure the obser observance of the fundamental principles of the UN Charter, including the main one, the sovereign equality of states. Nobody on earth will be considered a second-rate player. All nations are equal and sovereign. That's how to not play into this stupid capitalist versus communist fakery that we've all been told we have to, to play into. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the way the New World Order operates. It's multiple levels of binary dichotomies that they, that they give out to the people in order for them to have this back-and-forth football match where nothing gets settled, nothing gets done, and, and both sides are extremely distracted. And people need to break away from this ridiculous binary retarded backward thinking man it, it's the only way absolutely yeah and i mean when you look at just this is not a new thing this has obviously got new expression in our in our current age but even going back a few generations you know people thought that they had uh, 1776 you know adam smith publishes his wealth of nations on behalf of lord shelburne um you know the guy who was basically managing the british east india company and the british empire who was out to subvert the danger of the rise of the american revolution yeah that's the guy right who commissioned lord uh, adam smith this this british empiricist hack who said the human mind is incapable of planning anything to the future or judging anything objectively moral or truthful that's the role of god not of man our job is to just satisfy our lusts that's why god gave us the earnings the yearnings for sex is just to like give it to the urge and the magical self-regulating hand of the the you know the marketplace will just work itself out when you let everybody just be what we are which are beasts pursuing sex and self-satisfaction then all of a sudden we'll mystically just have goodness now he never actually believed it neither, neither did the people who commissioned him to write that piece of trash in 1776 not coincidentally the same year of the american revolution starting off right the idea was right. to always justify why the united states should not why there was a scientific justifying reason why the U.S. should not have industries and just remain an agricultural backwater zone and let Britain control the industries, not the U.S. They're not going to make money because they're not good at that. So why do something you're not good at? Let the people who are good at it do that. And there's a scientific reason for it. You're good at making uh, cotton. You know, we'll, we'll even like help you import more slaves, which is what the British were happy to do with the Portuguese. Um, to just make a whole system of dependency utilizing increasingly slave labor, which everyone knew was going to undermine the very fabric of the U.S. Constitution and Declaration of Independence. The British were happy about that fact, and it also encrusted a, a criminal syndicate inside of the United States around the slave power in the South, which increasingly be it became like the most powerful economy on the world, all because Britain was needed cotton for their textiles. 80% of the, the Southern cotton was going to meet British textile needs which mm. they were you know they had control of this because india didn't anymore india used to be the number one textile manufacturer in the world but britain made sure that that was all destroyed and indians who actually were specialists in uh in you know trade in like in actual who actually had skills to produce had their, had their heads their hands were cut off so that they couldn't actually uh maintain their machinery or anything else the brit the british were then happy just to force them uh to to make opium 
which right. was going to be their their new cash crop that they would supply their their Brahmin caste system, which was already going it was going extinct back in the 18th century. And right. the, the British were very careful to re-empower the caste system, the the self-controlling corrupt Brahmins at the top of the pyramid, while everyone else was going to become in a perpetual state of slavery to the British Empire. So they were happy with this whole global network. And where was the opium going? It was obviously part of the, the program to destroy China, which it did for a whole century and more. And it continues to, to try to. Um, so you had that whole thing. And it was all around this logic of Adam Smith and the stupid mystical idea of, you know, uh, invisible hands and, and personal hedonism is the source of value and supply and demand. And the reality was that was never, that was never viable. The idea of, of, of Adam Smith's, system only worked when with the assumption that there was no british east india company there was no city of london there was no supranational financier oligarchy if you don't assume that that's true yeah everything else he said could feasibly work right but as soon as you incorporate actual political powers in, in realities that the, the founding fathers like ben franklin and hamilton and others knew and understood that was the real source of evil that intention to destroy and use lies to undermine every every one of their victims it's no longer true anymore so free trade can work if all players are actually on equal footing and there's like a fair set of rules of the game, yeah, then competition plays a very important role, right? That's why the, the American states internally were, it was a good thing when they were finally granted free trade amongst each other instead of each state fighting for their own little territory of economic sovereignty against each other. There, that was insane. No unified nation. But it only worked because you had a holistic constitution with a, a broader protection of the nation as a whole around some spirit of common interest. And that's what people like John Quincy Adams was trying to inter internationalize in the 1820s around the idea of a community of principle, that international law couldn't be based on the U.S. adopting some Pax Romana, enforcing its will on the weaker under the guise of free trade or something. It would have to be based upon an idea of everybody, regardless of your cultural differences or national differences, working on making yourselves better. It's like the, the best version of America first, right? Right. Every nation should look after its own people and its own interests and on that basis conduct international fair trade um and you could have good healthy competition it's the source of a lot of good and then after a while people weren't buying the adam smith thing it wasn't taking hold very much because people could see this other thing was working very well and that america was leading and, and other nations were adopting of industrial activity protectionism large-scale infrastructure investments with ideas defining what the future should be like the Erie Canal, the Transcontinental Railway, and other nations were like, wow, we can do that too? That's in our sovereign right to control our own banking system, to build large-scale infrastructure that, you know, pulls people out of poverty. We can also do that. And so they had to cook up, cook up something new. And it became, you know, this, uh, this weird response, which was Marxism. And all of a sudden, Marx's, you know, Engels, all of these other little networks around Marx, like uh, David Weikart at the British Museum, because Marx was also based in London. He worked, you know, for London newspapers. Uh, people think of him as like a, a, a so like a pre-Soviet uh, Russian. No, he's, he's a British writer um, who is in bed with some very very shady uh, networks tied to British intelligence, Freemasonic operations like Giuseppe Mazzini, who ran with Lord Palmerston, a massive occult Freemasonic satanic network that uh, shaped that weaponized the masses of poor people under the Young Europe movement in the, in the 1830s and 40s and 50s to become basically uh, Jacobin battering rams against national governments that wanted to like break free of the British Empire. And that's that was innovated by these networks and their their, their, their writers 
which it still lacked a scientific coherence. It, it could persuade, it worked for the, 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 the poor and the abused who didn't really have a mental identity, I mean, an intellectual identity, um, but it didn't really work to recruit the, the upper crust, the, the aristocratic yeah. children. So that they needed to tighten up their ideology <clears throat> a little bit and create something with a semblance of, of scientific sociological coherence, which is where Das Kapital and other things came out of and emerged to do that with certain theories of, of human evolution, you know, that, that emerged around a dialectical materialist uh, push and pull of materialistic forces that somehow caused great ideas to just magically come, in, come into existence. Um, the class struggle mechanism was a big part of it too. You know, this idea that there will always be a universal constant of rich who will always hate poor and want to exploit them and poor who will always hate rich and want to overthrow them. And that class struggle is a constant that you have to assume is always true. Whereas, you know, in the, in the American system of Alexander Hamilton, Ben Franklin, people who you're not allowed to read, if you go to like university and you study educate or study economics, you can't read these people. But yeah. what's very clear on when you read their writings is that the source of value is not just letting all hedonism go under the this unregulated free market idea of Adam Smith. And it wasn't about some mystical, um, you know, class struggle that causes tension out of which new ideas and innovations arise uh, out of a dialectic materialistic idea, you know, with no intention. It was designed around principles of how the mind relates to matter using the idea of creative discoveries and by constantly mm. giving people the environment in which creative discoveries can be made, you will, and also translating those new discoveries into new inventions and forms of, of technology that improve your productive process. You're going to always overcome the Malthusian limits to growth that, you know, we'll always be able to make new discoveries that create new resources or that, that take things that were formerly just rocks like iron. And it becomes a resource when you make a discovery that that former rock is something which using a new technique, you can actually transform it and use it to make things better. And so what were formerly rocks become resources, right? Uranium right. was formerly only used for like in alum mines to like, not alum, sorry, uh, in like uranium was only used to dye glass yellow. Yeah. And that was its only purpose. And it took a long time for people to discover though there's something. Imagine that. You know, yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, exactly, exactly. And the value of it, right? The price of it after the discovery compared the it's the same material chemically before and after the discovery of the structure of the atom. Um, nothing really qualitatively changed. Money is still floating in the pre-discovery and post-discovery world. US dollars are floating around. But what 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 is different, right? How is it that all of a sudden what was formerly selling for maybe you know a couple of cents a gram is now selling for thousands of dollars a gram? Um, and what is the quality of those dollars? It's now operating, those dollars are now moving around after the discovery is made in a system which has an ability to sustain more people at a higher quality of life at smarter uh, cultural and intelligence levels, right? Right. Um, so that's something that the oligarchy has always despised. So they get us to think, okay, we have to be either Marxist or we can be Smith. We can be, you know, free market capitalists or we got to be Soviet, you know, Marxist communists. And, and that's all we've got. Pick, pick and choose one or the other. But then you look at what's going on today or, you know, they got variants as well. Right. So sub variants for people who are not comfortable with Marxism, they're told, oh, well, you can be Keynesian. Right. And if you're not comfortable with with Smith, well, you can be an Austrian school follower of von Mises and von Hayek. Right. And that it's essentially the same thing, though. Keynes versus Hayek, which is really what's shaped the whole Democratic and Republican Party. It's pretty much the, the Smith versus Marx formula 
Whereas Keen, both of them came out, Keynes versus Hayek, both both of these people came out arguing about their two opposing systems in 1932-33 in the London School of Economics, a Fabian Society school, right? Both of them are actually operating this in the same networks as a fake opposition to each other. They're friends their whole lives. They're both Malthusians. They both are devoted depopulation fanatics, but they come at it with different ideas on how it's going to happen. Whereas like Von Hayek is like, well, you can't force it. It's just going to happen. Except at the end of his road to serfdom where he says, but we do, you know, everybody should just be personally free to do whatever they want, but you'd still need some supranational governing uh, entity to enforce the rules. He says, yeah. you can't escape that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which already, where, and Keynes is just a little bit more clear. He's like, no, you need this state. Every time you have an economic crisis, the state must be the thing that just controls money, just spends money, makes jobs happen. Don't think about the causes or principles of, of what makes dis the discoveries occur. Don't think about that. Building a windmill is the same as building a nuclear plant, which is the same as building, you know, it, it's, it's all the same. Why? Because they're all going to make jobs paid for by the state, the people making the, the jobs, whether it's a windmill, a useless freaking windmill that's going to hurt your society or a nuclear plant that will benefit your society. It doesn't matter <clears throat> that money they will get they're going to use it. They're going to like buy food for their family. That's going to, or they're going to buy whatever movie tickets. And uh, that's going to stimulate industries that are going to make the products that are going to make the films or whatever else. And that new industry that's making their food is how Keynes is, is wiring it. Right. Which is a lie. That is now going to create a new demand for infrastructure because industries need a lot of energy <clears throat> and heavy, heavy infrastructure. That new demand is then going to force the government to supply it which is how infrastructure happens. It's by individuals just, you know, personally wanting to just consume things that makes all of the other things happen in your nation. That's not how it happens. That's yeah. FDR, <clears throat> which is why both of these guys were set up to have their fake debate exactly at the moment when it was becoming clear that Franklin Roosevelt, who was reviving Abraham Lincoln's American system of Hamilton, was about to take power in the United States at that same moment. He was, he was very close to victory. So they had to make sure people did not, uh, were not aware of what it was that was being reactivated and would think that they had, you know, one of these things or Smith versus Marx. Again, FDR <clears throat> didn't buy into any of that stuff. Yeah. FDR was clear. It's about a multipolar system of win-win cooperation. He was very clear fighting with Churchill saying after this war is done, we're not going to be protecting the Dutch, the French or the British empires. Those are going to be going extinct and we're not going to make an American empire. He was very clear on that too. So was Henry Wallace, his vice president. And he, he made a point. We're going to help all of the countries. We're going to convert our military, which is was used for war. And we're going to convert it into an arsenal for democracy to help all of the countries of the world, Africa and others, have access to infrastructure, electrification, other things, and train them to do it themselves. And he had deals worked out with the Shah of Iran, leaders across Africa. Um, he had deals signed with Brazil, the Brazilian, the Mexican presidents, Asia, everywhere, Stalin, you name it. And everybody was hoping that finally the <coughs> operations of the American Revolution of 1776, of a new age of reason, of brotherhood, right, where everybody is created equal in the eyes of God, uh, was going to be the new determinant for law. That was enshrined in the United Nations Charter, which Lavrov cited as well, right? He was very clear. That, that's the well, the well Matthew, I, Winston Churchill, I grew very leery of not being able to fight a war. And a war I will have, Matthew. I will make sure that the British Empire will continue to shine as a banking conglomerate ruling all the world's oceans from sunrise in the east to where it sets in the west. 
Yes. Gary Old Gary Oldman's got nothing on you, man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. You know, like like Churchill even said, the war is like the greatest time of his life. Um, he was actually unhappier when the war was over. Yeah, it's like it's, it's insane. It's something like that's like you expect Soros to say something like that, right? You know, like it was a great thing for me to get, sell out all the Jews. It was the happiest time of my life, walking Jews in the concentration camps, knowing that the ash coming from the chimneys is their ashen bodies. <laughs> no, it's sick. This guy was actually like eating this stuff up and, and, and bragging that that's how he, was, he felt um, as the Delusional. happiest, exhilarating time. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not surprising because Churchill himself was, I mean, he would, he would really make even Hitler like green with envy if you could just see what, what he was able to accomplish as far as human genocide. Churchill... I mean, he he consciously killed millions. I think it's somewhere around four million uh, Indians during World War II were starved to death because it's not like just because he wanted to have extra supplies of food in case yeah. maybe they might need it uh, for for the the Western or the for Euro, the European uh, battlefield. Yep. And so they they were more than happy to do like what they had done to Ireland earlier, what his grandpa did um, to to the Irish by just. You know, they had enough food in Ireland to keep everybody alive throughout the 1830s and 40s, but that was going against the rules of, of the free trade agreements that they had signed with Britain. They had to export a certain amount, and they had, you know, soldiers on the ground to make sure that they met their their free trade agreements to the point that you had kids and, and, and women and children, everybody just dying on the streets of Ireland. They lost something like 10 million people uh, in the 19th century to a, 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 an intentional British Malthusian policy of depopulation, and they did the same thing for India. Throughout the 19th century, they did it again in World War II. Churchill was a major, major Malthusian. He actually said he he would have marched with the black shirts of Mussolini if he was a bit younger. Um, the guy himself was a complete fascist scumbag. And and the fact yeah. that he's celebrated as being like this great hero um, by the darkest hour in Hollywood movies. Never. Yeah. Never surrender. Yeah. Yeah. That shit. <laughs> what the hell is that? No, I, I mean, he was more than happy to kill his own British, you know, uh, young men as well, sending them into unnecessary wars and, and battles to just prolong the war unnecessarily um, in terms of the battles at Dieppe, the Dieppe raid in France and other things. I mean, he just like took human human beings, even British human beings, and 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 turned them into a meat grinder um, just to keep the war going so that the British would have a chance. It could have ended in 1944, right? There was a... Yep open up a second front way back in 1941. And uh, immediately when the U.S. got in, they were already saying, like, let's open a second front. Let's do it. And Churchill was stalling. The whole British oligarchy was stalling to the point that they just kept on kicking the can down the line, down the road, saying, no, let's go for Africa instead. <laughs> That's I, Yeah, I, the, the I, whole I, Africa uh, campaign was the most... What was that about? Nobody could properly explain it. There's no... We'll go to Africa. No. We'll fight them in the sands. We'll fight them on the camels. We'll yeah. fight them on the stalks and the lions. We'll chase them wherever they may be. Absolutely. It's it's like, no, I mean, it, it does seem to be just this necessity because the, the, the British Empire and, and empires as a whole, but especially the British, they just thrive off of the purgative violence, right? The chaos oh, of yeah. disorder. And they they have this faith. It's part of their satanic sort of ritualistic way of thinking about control that by inducing uh, chaos... In that way, we can just somehow manage that chaos, navigate through it ab above the storm and come out somehow uh, controlling as much as possible, right? With our, mm. our enemies having self-defeated. 
And so they 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 tend to really extend these wars. Like, why did World War One happen? There's no good reason. Just like what we were just talking about. There's no no even the the highest level experts of history cannot give anybody a solid good reason why World War One happened. It's just a series of unfortunate events that all of a sudden, oh yeah, we were all killing each other in a meat grinder for four years. Um, because there was like a black hand terror cell that killed an archduke uh, who's a low level guy in Austria, and somehow everyone just was killing each other for four years. That's just what happened. And you got like some of the, the stupidest military maneuvers. I'm not really that proficient on this, but I've read a little bit. And I mean, things like the the, the attack in Gallipoli in yeah. Turkey. My God, Churchill, who oversaw that in World War One. Uh, he knew damn well that you were just going to take all of your thousands and thousands of, of kids with, you know, barely any battle, you know, not battle trained at all. Um, and just have them run into machine guns. That's all you're going to do. There's no, there's no way it was going to win. Everyone knew it was not going to be successful. Like, people on the ground knew they were, they're out to, to basically be sacrificed. They did it anyway. Cause British, you know, stoic, you know, for mother, you know, <laughs> the mother country, <laughs> you'll, you'll do anything, but, but it's like a cult. Um, and, uh, and the whole idea was just to simply prolong the agony so that they could really put themselves in a situation to control the conditions of the post-war age, which was the League of Nations, a one-world government agenda in 1919, the destruction of the Ottoman Empire, which had formerly had a, a giant design with Otto von Bismarck to build the Berlin to Baghdad Railway to help the Ottoman Empire modernize, to not go into... Uh, you know, uh, hellfire mode. Um, Germany was already adopting the the Hamiltonian system under Frederick List, who was an opponent of, of both Marx and Smith in uh, Prussia. That was unifying right. Germany. They were working also with their Russian counterparts. They were working with their French counterparts, like Gabriel Hanateau, the foreign minister. Sadi Carnot, prime minister, assassinated for the president, uh, assassinated in 1895. They were working to put protective tariffs on, industrialize just the way Lincoln had done. And do it with your neighbors in a, in a way that involves building peace treaties, not building secret war treaties that would get us into World War One, which is what the British were doing. Sure. Right? And so all, of the, all of this stuff, I didn't even talk about Russia, but they were big, big time. Russia was adopting this system under Alexander II and Third, and Sergei Vita, the, the prime minister of, of Russia. So all of this had to be destroyed. And that's what the British have, were trying to do with World War One, with their string of assassinations. And, um, you know, ultimately, this is what the the United Nations was not. So people think they're told that the United Nations is just a continuation of the League of Nations one world government. No. Oh. And and so the fact is, when you read the articles inside of the, the United Nations, unlike the League of Nations, it's not premised around creating a one world authority to enforce the will of a hege of a hegemon onto the many. It's based upon the enshrinement. That's what Lavrov was saying, right? The enshrinement of the sovereignty of each nation and the respect of each each person's sovereignty. That's an enshrined in it. It's so vital. And that's why FDR, it was his baby, right? He wanted a world where it wasn't going to be a police force telling people or imposing will. It was going to be a, 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 a place that would be able to be a zone where uh, different parties of the world could you know, mediate uh, their their conflict to harmonize their economic strategies to end hunger to to meet things like the four freedoms you know the the freedoms of all human beings to have no fear of secret police no fear of uh dying of of hunger right having the idea of no fear of of dying in war i forget the other one but of oh, freedom of religion was the other one 
um, regardless of where, what religion you are, you have a freedom of conscience. These were like freedoms that were going to be extended for the world as this sort of global uh, American revolution, this global American constitution, which is not a, like the World Health Organization's constitution that they're currently trying to pump out today. Very different idea. <laughs> the, 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 you guys have heard about the World Health Organization constitution? That's no. What, what is that? Free health care for all and uh, take a vax pass and what is it? <laughs> Yeah, basically. I mean, it, 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 it seems to be something that, that I just started looking into a little bit. But um, yeah, it's actually being promoted by Gavi, the World Health Organization. Gavi being the private, you know, uh, operation run by Gates in order to... And, and a lot of countries, I think even most countries, have even signed on on some level uh, to set up in December of this year the first conference to establish um, a global constitution, a health constitution... Um, for all future pandemics, because they're saying, well, we were so disorganized this time around. And so when future ones happen, we need to all be on board on the same page with the same protocols. Um, not having, you know, countries like China saying no to, uh, scientifically proven genetic therapies. No, everybody has to be this, you know, on the same wavelength. And so the world health organization needs to have that enforcement mechanism in place in order to override the, the dangerousness of, of sovereign nations who do things uh, with their own ideas sometimes. So that is obviously very, I mean, it's far enough from being actualized, but that fact that that is something that they're openly moving towards, and obviously there's a fight over how and what agenda will be controlling whatever the hell the, the World Health Organization is or becomes at that time, that's still, there's still obviously a fight over that. But that's a real way of thinking about world government, much more in alignment with the League of Nations idea um, of banning, you know, essentially sovereign countries from having access to their own credit, their own banking system, their own military systems and other things. So it's it's all in that orientation. And this is what Lavrov uh, and Putin and many others have been really fighting against, even though you've got traitors, as we've talked about, fifth columnists, deep staters in all of these different countries you actually see that there are nationalists who are fighting against it. Um, and a lot of people today in the alternative media world are putting their blinders on and they're really going into black pilled. We're all screwed mode. You know, like all sides are all controlled opposition. Any semblance of any fight is just there to give you false hope and then ruin your hope. Um, so whereas the wise person knows there's nothing we can do. The wise person <laughs> who watches, let's say, Corbett uh, or any number of other things knows that the best you can do is just sit back and make sardonic comments <laughs> while we all go to hell, which is our destiny to to be self-destroyed. And maybe we can enjoy ourselves a little bit and play some video games and make some some fun comments while while it's happening. But ultimately, this roller coaster is going over the, the abyss, and that's our destiny. I'm so James Corbett, and I recommend everybody getting cat food and heading to the basement while you enjoy the nuclear holocaust. Thank you. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because, so it's new really, world order controls everything, including China and Russia and all the multipolar world. They control it all. Yeah, it's actually a multipolar new world order. Um, the the whole idea of a of a unipolar world order. They knew that we were going to reject that, and so they created this false opposition of a multipolar new world order to as a way to give us a semblance of something good that we'll all give our support to. But that's actually the real new new world order, which is why Lavrov and Xi Jinping control. Klaus Schwab and the World Health Organization with their, you know, Venezuelan yeah. commie 
uh, junior partners, and that's the real enemy of the world. Is- you know the big problem with Corbett? I'll tell you what the big problem with Corbett is. Cor- Corbett's biggest problem, and guys like Corbett, is a severe, severe lack of understanding of number one, history, okay, and number two, economics and the way money works and the way money is flowing. They just don't know the players, and they don't know the historical context, and they don't know the real deep philosophies and ideas that are powering this emerging new multipolar world. And therefore, the easiest thing to do, because you're, they're, guys like him are ignorant of these facts, is to blanket coat everything as it's all part of the one world agenda. It's all one world government. It's all one world government. No, it's not. Well, it, it, it's difficult. Plato Plato talked about this. Like, how do you, um, how do you tell somebody something that they don't know when they think that they know it? Well, it's very hard. You could, you could obviously, it's easier to, to be a teacher um, if you have a student who is humble and knows that they don't know. But if, as soon as you have a bunch of people who think that they know, they've done work developing concepts that give them convictions and, and, and give them the, the courage or the ability to make blanket judgments on a variety of things based on what they think is knowledge. But it's not real knowledge. There's, there's Trojan horse fakery inside of their, their system that they haven't figured out how to identify where they're wrong. You can't really teach them. They're they're they've got a force field. That's a tough. That's a difficult thing. I think everyone can identify with trying to communicate with people who have the force field on, or who think that they know what they don't know. Um, and I think the thing with Corbett is that he has rigor. I do. Re- you know, I think we've all respected a lot of the work that he's done over the years as a researcher of evil. He's he's a good anatomist to be able to di- dissect a lot of the uh, the evil intrigues and structures of lies. That's good, and it's a necessary thing to have that. But at a certain point. Um, some of the techniques uh, that he's, or some of the tools that he's used to cut through the misinformation, which is useful that he can do that, involves an understanding that, for example, there are, are Hegelian dialectics. Just being aware that the empire operates utilizing the Hegelian dialectical method of what we were talking about, controlled oppositions, right, Con- controlled opposites, um, that gives you an ability to cut through a lot of bullshit. So he can map out using his, his you know, a, a certain sense of a love of freedom. And I'm not just saying this for for Corbett. I'm, I'm 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 we're obviously using him as as a foil in a sense, but I, it's not fair. It's it's more just anybody who is of a libertarian, a deeply seated Austrian school libertarian von Hayek type of foundation has certain assumptions about what freedom is, what human individual is, what the state is, what economics is. There's certain basic. They, they might use the same words as other, like you know, a Marxist and a and a von Hayek follower and a Keynesian. And Lincoln might all use the same words, government, peop, you know, human nature, freedom, economics. But the, the concepts are, are, are coming from totally opposing incompatible paradigms. Are all paradigms equally wrong? Are they all equally right? Are some more right than others? Well, yeah, for sure. If everything was equally right, then, you, then the liberals would be right and, and we'd all be living in a LBGTYXYZQ infinite gender world that we couldn't possibly justify as, as being wrong. Because all everything is all truths in the multiverse are true. If that's true, so that no, so okay, then which one is true? This is where we now have the issue of the in the libertarian sort of, I guess you could say, Adam Smithian um, modified Adam Smithian mode. All government is intrinsically bad, tyrannical, evil. So whether you have FDR, Lincoln, JFK, or you have Hitler, Napoleon, Mussolini, Klaus Schwab. It's all equally utilizing central powers to do things, which is all equally 
evil will all bring you to the path of serfdom and slavery. So the only thing that's absolutely good is personal freedom to do whatever you want. Anything which inhibits your personal freedom to do whatever you want, as long as you don't hurt somebody else, that's the sort of British empiricist view of freedom, right? You have the freedom to do whatever you want to the degree that it doesn't hurt somebody else. Okay, well, that's a negative freedom. That's not a positive freedom to actualize any potential you have inside yourself or activate higher sentiments of creative love and joy and happiness. That's not part of that lower view of British imperial freedom. That's just like, you know, you, yeah, that's the freedom of a, of, a, of a beast. Anyway, to that degree that something infringes on that, that type of freedom, it's bad. So any type of law becomes bad because it, it, you know, if it's an economic law based upon like what your society should do in the future, like let's say we want to industrialize or, or uh, build a high-speed rail grid or a maglev rail grid, well, that involves planning. It involves uh, rigidity. It means like conforming. People might not want to move. They might not want to develop skills. They might not want to have, you know, there might be no demand for electricity before there was electricity. Why would you force that on people? They might, they, if they never had it, they don't want it. Why would they want it now? right? You're being an authoritarian dictator. So you got this type of like crazy ass logic. Of course, you don't want what you've never had, you know, like that's, that's what the environmentalist depopulation fanatics say about uh, why Africa should not have abundant, fresh, desalinated water or nuclear power because they don't want it right now. I don't see Africans all clamoring for nuclear power. They've been living happily marching, you know, 12 hours a day to a dirty well and back for, for generations with like, you know, burning wood in their little huts, dying of asphy asphyxiation by 30. That's just what they want. And that's all they've known. So why are we going to supply a demand that, that doesn't exist? If we do that, that's why China's authoritarian, right? That's actually what they say in the CFR and the Council on Foreign Relations and others is China's authoritarian because they're imposing their values of technological progress and building dams and electricity and water and having like high, high class hospitals in, uh, in Africa. It's, it's really that racist from our standpoint, but we're acting like we're virtue signaling saying, no, we're protecting the natural e indigenous ecosystems of the Africans. I'm digressing for a reason, but point being back to Corbett, one of the key things is that not, it's not only the Hegelian dialectic that he thinks he's able to use to cut through the lies to diagnose the dead corpse of reality, but it's also this belief in Anthony Sutton, who is his sort of intellectual uh, godfather, who he said he's, you know, gave him the master key that he's been using. And Anthony Sutton is devoted. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Corbett it says Anthony Sutton is like his guru? Yes, ideological guru. I don't think they ever met. Oh, wow. But, okay. uh, but Anthony Sutton, if you actually look at the guy, he, he also, just like Corbett, does useful things, mapping out the, you know, the British funding of, or the, the Anglo-American Wall Street funding of fascism. And, and, yeah, the and, te and technocracy rules the world. Yeah, and everything. Technocracy he's rules a, Russia, he's a China. Austrian school libertarian. He's a British high-end libertarian Austrian school devotee, and that's how he is. That's the ideological filter through which he looks at all of the past is through his libertarian filter. He can't. It, it has a. It doesn't allow in information that disproves or contradicts his thesis, which is why he will also say Roosevelt was just as evil as Hitler. Anthony Sutton, who was a, a banker's boy, just like Hitler was, just like you know. So that's the sort of problem is you can only see evil and then you start seeing evil where it's not even and you cannot even see good. You, you can diagnose a corpse or, or dissect a corpse, a dead body, but you don't know what life looks like. You, you start looking at living tissue from the filter that you, of, of what dead tissue looks like. And that's the, that's the same problem is they'll, they'll look at 
a living process like the American Revolution and and just brush it off saying, oh no, that was a uh, you know a, an oligarchical aristocratic revolution to just control you more. Or Lincoln was just empowering. Look at how much more power uh, to corporations occurred in the wake of the Civil War, which involved taking people's right to have property away from them as well. One of the core creeds of the libertarian doctrine, right? But it's like, wait a minute, these these people or this property that you're saying was was taken away from them in the Civil War, weren't those living, breathing, thinking people slaves, right? Um, and it's like, it's it, it all becomes... They, again, they can't see the life. They can only see life through the filter of death. So they just see death everywhere. And thus it becomes something kind of poisonous that feeds off of the sense that I'm elite because I can see now what other people cannot see. I can see the evil that other people think is good. And all of a sudden you, you tend to have more of this egotistical complex of just like feeling like you're outside of the cave where everyone else is looking at the shadows. And now you can laugh at the people inside of the shadows, uh, believing in the shadows, um, offering nothing. Whereas true Socrates, Socratic method in the in the Republic, when he talks about the allegory of the cave, is that yeah, the true philosopher has to not only leave the cave to see what real light and real truth is, but then the true philosopher doesn't stay outside of the cage or 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 you know control the puppet strings, which is what you could do if you just stop short like George Soros, right? He he wants to just control the puppet strings of the people uh, believing in the the shadows cast by the puppet masters as part of a, a, a manager for the oligarchy. But no, the true philosopher, as says Socrates, has to go back into the cave at the risk of his own security in life to try to help people who believe in shadows to become aware that they have a higher way of thinking and seeing through their mind's eye and not their physical eyes, which involves also getting more people out of the cave. And that's the condition upon which a true republic has to be founded, is, is the, the philosopher king has to love people in that way to the point that they're willing to die, like Socrates was. Um, for the sake of a higher good, right? He took the hemlock. Um, all of the Socratic figures, like the church, the early church fathers, um, St. John, like John the Baptist. You look at all of the early church fathers were all persecuted and martyred because they took, they made the Socrates choice that we choose to, you know, live for our the health of our souls, despite the fact that our bodies will suffer and we might die. But the health of our souls and the, the happiness associated with that is primary. And the empire itself of Rome what happened to it when this thing took off no matter how many christians they threw at the lions that they burnt on roman roman torches what do you call them roman candles right to keep the the arena lit all night long with burning bodies of christians on on uh, on stakes um drenched in oil this was stuff that went on for years like over a century starting with nero who who did an inside job right burning down rome blaming it on the christians kind of like hitler did with the reichstag blaming it on the jews as an excuse to have a complete persecution that lasted all the way into like 315 ad and no matter how many people how many christians you killed more people were induced to uh live that life and and break away from satanic paganistic cults which is what was dominating the the religious institutions of rome and to the point that rome ended up basically dismantling itself it, it, it fell apart under the weight of its own immorality kind of like what the U.S. is going through today in the, in the Western world, where sort of like the last phase of the Roman Empire, where the the, the consequence of this immorality, the, the toleration of these satanic cults managing our society for far too long have brought us into a place where we cannot replicate ourselves anymore. We can't be creative the way our society needs to to make discoveries that overcome the limits to growth. So instead, we're being told, well, now's the time for the big cull where we get back into harmony with nature and live with less, live with lower expectations, live with more euthanasia of, of old people who are too expensive to maintain, live with less food that we're 
even paying to have destroyed, live with less energy um, because we're going to just have everybody get sucked onto solar panels and windmills. And uh, we're going to just, you know, go with that new flow. And uh, surprise, surprise, a big chunk of the world population doesn't want to do that. You know, holy shit. You know, they got the Christian Russians, you got the, the, the Indians representing a whole complex of, of Hinduism and Sikhism and, and Buddhism and other. And then you have China representing Buddhism and Confucianism and, and a few other groups. And you have Islam also being re represented by Pakistan and, and Iran, increasingly even maybe Turkey has been playing both sides, but is obviously more inclined, it seems, to, to move in the, in the multipolar Belt and Road Initiative orientation. 20 Arab states have signed on to the BRI. And of course, of course, the empire's freaking out. Of course, they're trying to do everything possible to break up, break Pakistan out of it and, and doing what they doing what they just did this week to oust Imran Khan. It doesn't seem like the new Pakistani government is, is necessarily bad. I haven't seen evidence of that yet. They still seem to want to keep the, the obligations of Pakistan in terms of its participation with Afghanistan, the BRI, the CPEC. They want to keep that in place. That's good. I don't know. I don't know what else they might do, but there's obviously a huge desperation and fear that this new system is going to be the hegemonic dominant system, which is what Lavrov was talking about, which breaks us out of this Hegelian dialectic dichotomy and back into the type of way of thinking that people like Plato or, you know, Cicero and his Commonwealth or St. Augustine and his city of God were all writing about, like the idea that there's a natural law in the universe and man's law has to come into conformity with that natural law. And we can always, we have to have it in an open system like the American Constitution, which is an idea of a self-perfectible system, right? We, the American Constitution, it wasn't a finished product. And the founding fathers who authored it, they knew. That's, that's why they didn't write in order to form a perfect union. That would be a closed, finished system. That would be itself very imperfect if you tried to do that. They said a more perfect union because it was open to being perfected via amendments done constitutionally. And that's the way that you... You know, the human beings who are, I guess, you know, not destined to self-extinguish, we are always open to making things better because we can never become perfect. That's that's for the higher, you know, that's for heaven. We we have a little bit of the divine. We got a little bit of the lower, the lower thing too, in terms of like the fleshly passions. That's we're never going to be liberated from that, nor should we. That's part of what makes creative discoveries and doing good and free will so beautiful. If you didn't have any urges to to do what you shouldn't do. Well, that would make, you know, free will useless. It would, it would be no free will. You just do what you do. You'd be a robot. So thank God we can fuck things up, you know? Thank God, in that sense, that <laughs> that we can make a mess. But that's only because we can also change transformatively to wisdom if we chose to. Um, and we have a chance. We still have a little window of opportunity to to make that transformation and, and make the right decisions by avoiding World War III and working with the Belt and Road Initiative, working with Russia on win-win, John Quincy Adams type of community of principle stuff. And uh, that window's closing, though. It's closing damn fast. Oh. Uh, in, in a very, very big and major way, man. It, uh, it, you know, the, it can't close fast enough. And mm -hmm. I, for one, and I think everybody listening to us should for one, celebrate the end of the unipolar world. The amount of harm, the amount of destruction, the wanton loss of life on a grand scale that would make the concentration camps of, of Germany blush. I, for one, am happy. And I think this could be a momentous occasion for us who are right-thinking to step into the phrase, step into the vacuum 
and try to lead as many people as we possibly can or influence as many people as we possibly can to uh, leverage this for the betterment of their neighborhoods, their families, and their communities, man. Amen. Amen. Yep. And so, yeah, back, just a shameless plug. Um, that's that's the content of uh, Volume 3 of The Clash of the Two Americas that should be out uh, at the end of this week, maybe next week, um, with a picture of Benjamin Franklin. And uh, here, I'll do a little, uh, actually, since I talked about it here. Um, Get the book, window. folks. All right, let me do it. I'll show the picture of the book cover here. Um, this is you're actually seeing behind the scenes here. Probably not good for my security, but that's okay. Uh, <clears throat> there was one time that CJ uh, shared his screen, and I saw, um, you know, uh, there was a folder that said insurance policy on it, and something about that's Hunter right. Biden. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we are. Here we are. Book three cover. And it's opening. And it's opening. There we are. There we are. Birth of a Eurasian Manifest. Destiny is uh, going to be I a think, I think you might have to share the, the oh. window where it's... Uh, Oops. Where it's... Uh, okay. Yeah, share the yeah. window where it actually opened. Because we were still on the filing thing. I got the path uh, written down, Matthew. I'll check your folders tonight. Oh, okay. It's been replaced by a picture of CJ drinking tequila. <laughs> that is the cover. <laughs> Where, oh, I can do this. I can do this. One last time. And, 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 and Benny V. Titles the book, nah. Donde Estas Tequila. <laughs> I'm Matthew Eric. <laughs> My computer just periodically gets hijacked by, by CJ from now on. Next week, I'll have a, an image for it. Excellent. Folks, cool. get the books. Go get to the, the risingtidefoundation.net and get the class of two the class of two Americas, volume one and volume two. Volume one is the unfinished symphony. It is a masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece. I mean, we are literally sitting, as as he was, you know, states in the book, sitting on the edge of a precipice. And what happens from here on out, folks, it's so important. So important you know where we are and where we're going. Matthew frames it better than, than anybody I know. Period. Punto final, as they would say. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us, man. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Folks, go to his Substack, substack.com forward slash Matthew Errett, substack.com forward slash Matthew Errett. Sign up for the Substack. Also, Cynthia, his wife, also does She's a phenomenal researcher and writer. And make sure you sign up for hers as well. And then when you go to the risingtidefoundation.net, you could also subscribe to uh, many uh, the, the Telegram channels where where Matthew announces you, you know weekly seminars. Pretty much, you guys are, are always doing seminars on oh, history, oh, on, yeah. on, on 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 culture. It's just amazing. Yeah, this gonna... we're actually gonna have uh, uh, Martin Seif, who's this uh, award-winning journalist. This guy is like authored so many books. He was the the, the Washington correspondent to uh, yeah. the Washington Times for like twenty-five years. He's doing something on uh, how the British created and destroyed Orwell. Um, that'll be this Sunday. So uh, yeah, anybody wants to to get an invite to that, send us an email at uh, info at risingtidefoundation.net. Um, and uh, yeah, you'll get a Zoom invite. Perfect. Folks, if you want to get a PhD level understanding, a PhD level of understanding, go there, join the risingtidefoundation.net. It is the modern 
Library of Alexandria, all things geopolitical, all things geostrategic. And with that sound of the French ringtone, it is time to say au revoir. Yeah, we have to eat our Quebecois baguettes. Yes. Goodbye. Au revoir, Monsieur Alex. Au revoir, CJ. Oui, oui. And uh, we are out. I am the gorilla. <laughs> <laughs>